This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from business to history to the arts, sports, and everything in between, and your stories, too. And this one is a special one. More than a half a century after it hit theaters, Mary Poppins is still one of the most beloved films ever. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. You may have seen the 2013 period drama Saving Mr. Banks, starring Emma Thompson and Tom Hanks as filmmaker Walt Disney, who attempts to obtain the screen rights to P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins novels. Whether you've seen the movie or not, we thought we'd kick it up a notch and hear from the people who were actually there. Now, let's begin with television and screen legend Dick Van Dyke. I think all would agree that Mary Poppins truly is Walt Disney's crowning glory. Like Mary Poppins herself, the film is practically perfect in every way. The perfect creative team, perfect songwriters, the perfect cast, and the perfect person to put it all together, Walt Disney. But getting started wasn't that easy. Here's Disney animator Andreas Dejas and P.L. Travers biographer Valerie Lawson. I remember him being interviewed for it, and he said that his daughter Diane had read the books, and she actually was the one who said, Dad, maybe there is something for you here. And he loved the books too. So it was something very personal to him from the start. P.L. Travers' Mary Poppins was published in 1934 in London, but it wasn't until about four years afterwards, in 1938, that Walt Disney went after the rights. Mrs. Travers, however, wasn't too keen. Allegedly, she said she'd seen other books that had been turned into movies, and she didn't like the way they'd been treated by Hollywood, but Walt never, ever gave up on a good idea. And in 1944, he tried again. Walt sent his brother to try and convince Pamela, who was in New York, that she would release the rights to him, but she wouldn't. Now, over the next few years, there are several offers made and as many refusals. And these, these conversations they had are all recorded. Now we come to my notes here, my typewritten notes, and this is what I want to make very clear. The book should be read very carefully for atmosphere. It is integral to the book and to the story that Mary Poppins should never be impolite to anybody. You brought your references, I presume, may I see them? Oh, I make it a point never to give references. A very old-fashioned idea to my mind. Is that so? Here's song composer and lyricist for Mary Poppins, Richard Sherman, and film historian Brian Sibley. No, 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 don't make it like that. There were so many hesitations in, in her acceptance of the idea that the father and mother change and become warmer and more loving. She said, not a change of heart, because he's always been sweet, but worried with the cares of life. I think she had 30 days to consider. On the 30th day, she relented but she had to be the consultant. It seems unbelievable after all that had gone on, but almost 20 years from the point when Walt Disney had set out on this quest, Mrs. Travers agrees on certain conditions that the film might be made. We were considering a number of people to play the part of Mary Poppins. We had uh, uh, Mary Martin, and we were thinking of Betty Davis, and then we were also thinking of Angela Lansbury. But. Uh, it wasn't until one evening when the Ed Sullivan show had an excerpt from Camelot and a young woman named Julie Andrews and Richard Burton sang What Do the Simple Folk Do? 
And I called my brother. I said, Bob, oh my God, she's absolutely perfect. Next day we walked into DeGrati's office and Don DeGrati says, did you see the Ed Sullivan show last night? I mean, it was just wow. So we walked down the hall, the three of us, to, we want to see Walt. Here's Tony Walton, Mary Poppins' costume and set designer, and his then-wife, Mary Poppins herself, Julie Andrews. P.L. Travers had approval, pretty much, of everything in her contract, so Walt said that Julie would need to be auditioned or passed by the author of the stories. I met her very briefly in London. She, I think, was fond of me and, and approved of my doing Poppins. Uh, I know she said that I had the nose for it. As I expected, Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way. She was quite happy with Julie Andrews, though. She was more than happy. She loved her performance. Roomy for everyone, gather around. The constable responsible. Now, how does that sound? Walt Disney was reading in a newspaper an article about what people thought about the cinema today, and he came across a comment by Dick Van Dyke which said that he personally did not like the way in which modern-day movies were trending towards, as he put it, dirty pictures. Now, this was something that Walt himself felt very, very strongly about, and he thought, oh, this man's a man after my own heart. So he had a look at some of Dick's work, and he asked Dick to come over to the studio. They met. Instantly, they liked one another, and almost instantly, Walt was offering him the part to play Bert. Can't put me finger on what lies in store, but I feel what's to happen. All happened before. I had only been in one movie myself, so I was about as green as anything. And uh, Julie, despite the fact it was her first film, was perfectly professional. She had a camera personality. She knew where the camera was. She knew where the lights were, as if she had done it all her life. She was thoroughly professional from the beginning. Of all the wonderful things that Walt was coming up with for this movie, one of the greatest moments in my songwriting career was we had finished this song, Jolly Holiday, and we were playing it for the first time for Walt, and Don DeGrati had developed a bunch of beautiful sketches for this thing. And there's a section in the song where four waiters were going to come out, and Walt said, hold it. And he said, waiters have always reminded me of penguins. <laughs> so they made them penguins. That would have never occurred to any human being except Walt Disney. He had this wonderful, whimsical way about him. Walt said, as a matter of fact, we'll animate everything in that sequence except for the principal characters. You know, we can do that. We have this sodium vapor process that Ub Iwerks has created. When Mary holds your hand, you feel so grand, your heart starts beating. It was a high point of my life when I saw that finally put together with the real animation in there. What a masterful job it was. Walt took all of his little bag of tricks that he developed over 35 years and put, put them into this picture. I did a glorious die, right as a morning in mine. I feel like And I when we come back, we'll continue the story of Mary Poppins here on Our American Stories. The grass so green or a bluer sky. Oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary. Mary makes your heart so light. Chim, chim, chim. 
to me, a sweep is as lucky as lucky can be. Chim chimini, chim chimini, chim chim chimini, good luck will rub off when he shakes hands with you. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Mary Poppins. Here's Karen Dutrice, who played the young Jane Banks. I think the one thing that comes off with Disney movies of the old days, and especially Walt himself, was his love of innocence. And I think that's what Walt revered in We Children, and that's what he wanted to send us away with still. And he succeeded. Alan, we had the most glorious meeting. When we were casting the film, Walt immediately said, I know the perfect person to play the mother, and that is Glynis Johns. She's just absolutely right. And we all agreed, she's absolutely perfect. Gracious, Kate and Anna, you're not leaving. What will Mr. Banks say? He's going to be cross enough as it is to come home and find the children missing. Here's Glennis Johns, who played Mrs. Winifred Banks. I said to Walt, it might give me an incentive if I could have my own little number. Walt reached over and said, but Glennis, the boys are just finishing a great number for you. You're going to love it. Wait till you hear it. So he says, all right, all right. I'll he- have to hear it. And if, 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 I, if I like it, then I might, I might consider doing the part. So she left. Walt said, Get on this thing. You've got to write something for her. But we had this song that we had written called Practically Perfect. So we said, hmm, that could be a suffragette song. By the time I got back to the Chateau Marmont, the telephone was ringing, and it was Walt. He said, listen to this. I heard the first few bars of Sister Suffragette. We're clearly soldiers in petty coats and dauntless crusaders for women's votes. Though we adore men individually, we agree that as a group they're rather stupid. Glynis was interested then. When I think now of how nearly I didn't do it, it's amazing because I'm so proud to be part of it. It was the only time I've ever been working on a project where at the end of each day, I walk away saying, this is so good. I knew from the very beginning, after every day shooting, how good that movie was going to be. Our songwriters, Dick and Bob Sherman. We asked Walt if we could have a half an hour of his time, and uh, we played a few song ideas we had. He was very impressed with what we were coming up with. And uh, at the end of this meeting, uh, he said, play me that, uh, that Bird Woman song again. Come feed the little birds, show them you care. It was about charity, about giving somebody something that they didn't ask for, but that they could use love. Please, may we feed the birds? Waste your money on a lot of ragamuffin birds? Certainly not. Feed the birds, toppins a bag. Walt, from the time he heard it, just loved that song. Never said it to us, but he would, like a Friday afternoon, he'd call us up and say, come over, and 5.30, 6 o'clock, we'd come over to his office, and he'd say, play it. <laughs> and I'd play Feed the Birds and sing it for him. Feed the birds, toppence a bag. And he'd, yep, that's what it's all about. 
Have a good weekend, boys. And then he'd send us home. He loved that song. It was his favorite. Here's Richard Sherman, Julie Andrews, and Dick Van Dyke. And Walt Disney gave that tuppence a bag with the lady who played the Bird Woman. Her name was Jane. Uh, Jane Darwell. And what happened was Walt said, I know the perfect person to play this part, if she'll do it. She's, she's old and frail, oh. but I want her to do it. And Walt... Was that is, the last thing she ever did? Yes, it was. And, mm. and uh, she died soon after she did it. But oh. they sent a, a special car for her. They treated her like a star. Walt came down to the soundstage oh. to, to see her. She was so yeah. thrilled and happy. She cried because she said Walt Disney was so kind to her. That was giving that... Tuppence. Tuppence of bag. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. The musical style was really boiled beef and carrots, boiled beef and carrots, an old English uh, folk song. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. And, and any old iron, any old iron. It's uh, silly little songs that they wrote in those years, and uh, we wanted to feel like that, and yet be original and, and totally our own. When the film was released, audience response was overwhelming, and it became an instant phenomenon. It was the biggest hit in the history of the studio. Mary Poppins had worked her magic on the world. Mary Poppins premiered on August 1964 at Grauman's Chinese Cinema on Hollywood Boulevard. They tell me this could be one of your biggest pictures, Mr. Disney. Well, we... Retired yet. I'm so nervous I'm about to die. It's such an exciting night. This is the night of all. The red carpet, big we had the big tent out. Yeah, right. yeah. And we had a big garden party built out on the, on on the, the back, yes. The back. And the reaction was wonderful. <laughs> what an ovation I got at the end. The reviews were fantastic. I never read reviews like that. They were all glowing, th thrilling reviews. It was a remarkable success, a very, very big popular success, which I mean, that, that is the greatest thing I think anybody could have, seeing people enjoying and laughing and crying to your work. It's just the one, most wonderful thing in the world. For the best actress in a musical or comedy, the nominees are... At the Golden Globe Awards in February 1965, Julie Andrews was nominated for Mary Poppins, opposite Audrey Hepburn for My Fair Lady. And suddenly, I don't know how it came about, maybe Bill Walsh brought it up, but we suddenly realized that if, if Jack Warner had asked me to do My Fair Lady, which I missed out on, I would never have been able to do Mary Poppins. The winner is Julie Andrews, Mary Poppins. Thank you very much for this lovely honor. It's a wonderful memento of a very very happy time and I took an enormous gulp and said finally my thanks to a man who made a wonderful movie and who made all this possible in the first place mr. Jack Warner everybody screamed it was like a thunderous scream and everyone's laughing including mr. Warner so I was home and safe and that was her little sweet revenge I think. it was great congratulations thank you very much when a few weeks later, the Academy Award nominations were announced, Mary Poppins received an amazing 13 nominations. Among the nominations include Best Picture, Director, Actress, Screenplay, Cinematography, Art Direction, Visual Effects, Original Song, and Score. There probably aren't words to describe your emotion. Now, 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 gentlemen, please. 
On the contrary, there's a very good word. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> the magic of it had escaped me, pounding it out every day. When it was all put together, there was. It, there was something else besides what we put into it. I don't know what serendipity came along, but there was a wonderful magic aura about that movie that nobody expected. And it's just as I say, every time I see the film, I think it's better and better. And now each generation is going to enjoy it in a different way. Papa Kite needs a proper tale, don't you think? It was such a contribution to family entertainment and I, I know that it's going to be around for a, for a long time. It, it stands as the perfect Walt Disney movie, as far as I'm concerned. I had the pleasure, the honor, really, of, of being asked to, to uh, help dedicate the Walt Disney statue at Disneyland. It was his 100th birthday, and so I was, they have to do that, and they said, would you play a couple of songs? And I said, okay. And I played a couple of things, and then I said, I'm now going to play Walt Disney's favorite song, and it's just for him. And I sang and played Feed the Birds, Tuppence the Bag. I finished my song, and I blew a kiss to Walt, statue like that. I said, happy birthday, Walt, and I got down. And they told me afterwards, just toward the end, out of the clear blue sky, one bird flew down right over where I was playing and off again into the clouds. Well, that moves me very much. That was Walt saying thanks. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Greg. And again, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter. Just give us your email address and we'll give you five of our best stories each week, every week. And thanks to the folks at MyPillow.com for providing sponsorship and support to this show. And go to MyPillow.com and get their pillows. My wife and I use them, and my goodness, sleep's been better ever since. Just go to MyPillow.com and type in stories. Give it a shot. I promise you, you'll sleep better. It's helped me. It's helped my bride. And my goodness, as we go out, we'll be listening to the great Julie Andrews singing... The story of Mary Poppins. Here are now American stories. Toppins, toppins, This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here, and that's arts to sports, history to business, and everything in between. And we tell your stories, too. Send your stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we will turn them into stories and put them right back on the air. Indeed, your stories are the hour in Our American Stories. And we love to do this days in history, as you know. They're always brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And today, well, we celebrate the birthday of the first United States Marine Corps officer to serve as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Peter Pace was born 
on this day in history in 1945 to Italian-American parents in Brooklyn, New York. He was raised in Teaneck, New Jersey, a city that I happened to have been born in. And after graduating from high school, he joined his older brother at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis. His first goal was to become a submarine officer, but two things nudged him in a different direction. First, to his own surprise, Pace loved Plebe Summer, where he and the other slightly more experienced midshipmen trained and led the incoming freshmen. Second, his older brother earned a Silver Star and a Purple Heart in Vietnam. And as in all good families, excellence inspires excellence. As my dad used to say, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Pace decided that he would become a Marine Infantry Officer. And so, following graduation, 2nd Lieutenant Pace attended the basic school at Quantico, where all Marine officers learned to lead an infantry platoon. And of course, he finished at the top of his class. Soon, Pace was deployed to the jungle, to Vietnam, where he learned a lesson that he has spent the rest of his life sharing with young leaders, especially those looking to lead men into combat. This was not a lesson about infantry tactics, nothing so mundane. No, it was one about setting our own moral compass. And as always, our This Day in Histories are brought to us by Hillsdale College, which, like our service academies and a handful of other great institutions, takes the moral formation of its students seriously. They also teach constitutional history, American history, all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life. Go to hillsdale.edu to learn more. That's hillsdale.edu. Back to 1967. Peter Pace arrives in Vietnam during the Tet Offensive, and he takes command of the 2nd Platoon, Company G, 2nd Battalion, 5th Marine. Now a rifle platoon should have more than 40 Marines. This one had only 14. Of the 158 Marines originally assigned to the company, 155 would be killed or wounded in action. It's against this backdrop that we listen to Pace describe what happened one day outside of Da Nang in Vietnam. We were on patrol. And a incredible young Marine named Lance Corporal Guido Farinaro from Bethpage, New York, 19 years old, born in Italy, naturalized citizen of the U.S., was shot by a sniper right in the chest. I was holding Guido when he died, and I was absolutely enraged. Now, I had heard all the stories about people supposedly cutting off ears and doing things in combat that, you know, weren't right. And I knew, I knew I would never allow myself or any of my Marines to ever do anything immoral or unethical in combat. When Guido died, I was enraged. I called in an artillery strike on the village from which the sniper round was fired. It takes a little while between the time you call for fire and you get it. During that time, my platoon sergeant, 
who was an E-5 sergeant, but he was on his second tour in Vietnam, didn't say anything to me. He just looked at me. I could tell by the way he was looking at me that what I was doing was wrong. I mean, it just confirmed what I already knew in my heart of hearts. I called off the artillery strike before it was fired. We did what we should have done in the first place, which was to sweep through the village on foot. Go figure, we found nothing but women and children. I don't know how I could live with myself if we had done what I almost did. The point is, the time to set your moral compass is not when your best buddy gets shot, is not when your women get shot down. You will be morally challenged when you are least emotionally prepared to deal with it. Every day since, I have thought about who I am. I got my platoon together that day and apologized to them for almost doing what I almost did. And then every day since then, I have just thought through what's going to happen today that might be a moral challenge, an ethical challenge. 99.9% of the time, the things I could think of never happened. But it got me into a routine of thinking about who I am so that when things that I hadn't thought about happened, I was able to take the two to three seconds, that's all it takes, the two to three seconds to think about, is this who I am, before executing. What a story by Pete Pace. And again, General Pace was born on this day in history in 1945, and that's why we're telling you this story, but my goodness, this is one we'll tell a few times a year because everyone needs to hear it and be reminded of it. In fact, he reminded himself of it all the time. I loved when he said, you will be challenged when you are least prepared emotionally to deal with it. And isn't that how life works, folks? Also, just love the part where Pace apologized to his guys. And he didn't have to, and he didn't need to necessarily, but it was good that he did. Because he almost, well, he almost did something tragic that his entire unit would have suffered from his bad call, his emotional call. You know, there was that moment with the sergeants looking at him, and even as a relatively inexperienced lieutenant, Peter Pace knew what to make of the look from his platoon sergeant. And by the way, we have to share one more story from some 40 years later in Peter Pace's career. After rising to the rank of four-star general and serving as our nation's highest-ranking military officer, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Peter Pace retired at Fort Myer in Virginia, and that happened on October 1, 2007. Following the ceremonies, Pace went to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. The striking black wall engraved with the names of 58,320 Americans who gave their lives, they gave all, in Vietnam. And he left behind several index cards. Onto each three-by-five piece of paper, he pinned his four stars, metal representations of his rank, his career, and his code of honor. And General Pace then hand-wrote a personalized note like this. For Guido Farinaro, USMC, these are yours, not mine. With love and respect, 
your platoon leader, Pete Pace. And folks, it doesn't get finer than that. Peter Pace's story, this day in history, he was born in 1945. His story, so many soldiers' stories, old and new, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and now it's time for our story of a song. And we've done a bunch of these, and we love doing them. We did Georgia on My Mind, Light My Fire. Ray Manzarek walked us through that one. Another brick in the wall and how that song came to be. There Goes My Life. We heard the song performed by the guy who wrote that song and why he wrote that song. Very moving. Jesus Take the Wheel, and our favorite here at Our American Stories, Gimme Shelter. And those background tracks, that one lone African-American female backup singer adding this haunting element that makes the song. And go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear any and all of our stories of a song. And today, it's Chris Christopherson's Why Me? And this is one of the great writers, a terrific actor, too, an all-around man's man, ladies' man. Everybody loved and loves Chris Christopherson. And my goodness, me and Bobby McGee alone gets you there. He wrote that. And Sunday morning, coming down. Why Me was recorded by Christofferson in 1972. And it was his lone major country hit as a solo recording artist, reaching number one on the Billboard magazine Hot Country Singles charts in 1973. Here, Chris Christofferson tells the story of exactly why and how he came up with that song back in the 1970s. And it had a lot to do with Larry Gatlin and his song and the type of music that Larry was recording at the time. We've been down in Cookville with a bunch of people doing a benefit for for Dottie West's uh, high school band or something. Then uh, Connie uh, took me over to to church the next day to to Jimmy Snow's church. Uh, I, I had a profound uh, religious experience uh, during during uh, the the uh, session, something that I hadn't never had happened to me before, and uh, and uh, why me came out of it. Everybody was kneeling down, and uh, and uh, Jimmy said uh, uh, something like, "If if anybody's lost, please raise their hand." And I was I was kneeling there, and I don't go to I don't go to church a lot, and uh, and uh, the notion of raising my hand was uh, out of out of the question, <laughs> and I thought uh, I I can't imagine who's doing this, and all of a sudden I felt my hand going up, and I was hoping nobody else was looking because everybody was had their head over, bend over, uh, 
praying, and then he said, uh, if, if anybody ready to accept Jesus, something like this, uh, come down to the front of the, of the church. And uh, uh, I thought that would never happen. And, uh, and uh, I found myself getting up and walking down with all these people and going down there. And, and I don't really know what he said to me. He said something to me like, are you ready to accept uh, Jesus Christ in your life or something? And I said, I don't know. I, I didn't know what I was doing there. And he put me down, <laughs> said, kneel down here. And, and he, uh, I, I can't even remember what he was saying, but whatever it was, was such a release for me that I, I find myself weeping in public <laughs> and... and uh, and uh, I felt the, this uh, forgiveness that I didn't that I didn't know I even needed. Then Christofferson in this small group with some musicians. By the way, one of them was next to him. His name's Willie Nelson. They performed the song. Why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Tell me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth loving you or the kindness you've shown? And there have been a whole bunch of people who've recorded this song. Elvis Presley among them. He incorporated it into his set with the song Why My Lord back in 1974 in January and then right up until his last concert tour. It was first released on the live album Elvis recorded live on stage in Memphis. The recording is from his March 20, 1974 concert in Memphis, Tennessee. He often introduced the song for J.D. Sumner, to sing one of his favorite songs. Sumner would sing the verses, and Elvis would then join in the chorus. Let's take a listen. Thank you. I'd like to ask J.D. Sumner and the Stamps to sing one of my favorite songs, Why Me, Lord? I ever do to 
And the favorite version here at Our American Stories involves two of our favorites from two very different walks of life, two different styles of music, the great Johnny Cash and the great Ray Charles. And with that, another story of the song, Chris Christopherson's song. You heard Elvis do it. My goodness, so many people did. Let's listen to Ray and let's listen to Johnny do it. American stories, the story of a song, and this one, Why Me, by Chris Christopherson, and let's take it back, gospel being at the root of so much of American music. Let's listen to Ray Charles, play those keyboards, and hear Johnny Cash take it out. This is Our American Stories.
to live just sitting putter. Life's candy and the sun's a ball of butter. Don't bring around a cloud to rain on my parade. Don't tell me not to fly. I simply got to. If someone takes a spill, it's me and not you. Who told you you're allowed to rain on this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Barbara Streisand's remarkable performance in Funny Girl. What a singer, what an actress, what a talent. And people have opinions about Barbara Streisand, I think because she has such opinions. But my goodness, what a talent. We are here to talk about that talent and talk about, um, well, a book, a great new book. Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power, and it's by Neil Gabler. And just a bit about Barbara Streisand before we bring Neil on. I mean, six decades she's been at it. And my goodness, five Emmys, ten Grammys, two Oscars, a Tony Award. You can go on and on. Presidential Medal of Freedom. I don't think there's been a more honored female artist in the history of American show business. And that she can do it all, I think, must infuriate some people. But what we're going to dig into now is the life of Barbara Streisand. The other day we did The Life of Bob Dylan, another iconic American life, an unlikely life. And Neil, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. And, you know, when we were talking about Bob Dylan the other day, we played a clip, and someone had asked Dylan if he was surprised at his success. And he was like, no, I had always thought I was going to be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> I mean, and not quizzically, Neil. I mean, not cockily. It wasn't, he wasn't cocky about it. It was just... Yeah, I think he thought he was predestined for greatness. And I, I, I can only assume from what I've read already that that's what you learned about Barbara Streisand. Absolutely true. Uh, I don't think you can really succeed the way that Barbara Streisand succeeded if you didn't believe in yourself. Yeah. And she believed in herself against the odds. Here was a little girl who had aspired to show business from you know the... the the earliest age, and whose own mother told her, forget that dream. You're never going to make it. You're not pretty enough. You're just not going to succeed. Here was a girl who, as she went on to high school, wouldn't even get the solo in her high school's choir. (laughs) It went to someone else who was a, a more operatic kind of singer. Here was a girl who, when she first tried to enter show business, was told repeatedly the same thing that her mother had told her by producers and agents. You're, you're just not attractive enough. You're going to have to find another profession. You're never going to succeed at this profession. Girls who look like you don't wind up being stars. Yep. So somehow against all of the odds, there was some sense of fortitude within Barbara Streisand that kept her going. You know, we're going to start off by playing a scene from the movie Funny Girl where Barbara is looking into the mirror at herself. She's wearing a chic leopard coat and hat with an expression made of equal parts admiration, disappointment, irony, and defiance. And by the way, she was capable as an actress of doing all of those things. And she greets herself. Let's take a listen. Hello, gorgeous. <laughs> Neil, talk about this scene and why you open your book with it. Well, this is a scene that introduces Barbara Streisand to the world. Now, she played this role, obviously, on Broadway and became a star, but this is the opening of the movie, and it is where Barbara Streisand addresses herself. 
And in some ways, it, it, it kind of um, expresses the themes of Barbara Streisand's career, uh, of her life, and of her work. Um, and she looks in that mirror, and when she says, hello, gorgeous, I mean, there is a sense of irony. Here's a woman who's been told repeatedly, and is told in the movie as well, yep. in the role of Fanny Bryce, mm -hmm. that she's not gorgeous. She's not good-looking enough. The same thing, again, that Streisand had been told throughout her life. Um, and yet at that point, when she's looking in that mirror, she is a star already. This is how the film begins, and then we move into flashback. Uh, that irony has sort of been subverted because she is gorgeous. She has succeeded. She has become a star. And and so there, there's, there is, uh, you'll have to excuse my dog in the background. Oh, no, we love dogs in the background. It's a running theme on the show. We never get rid of them because we love dogs. Well, Go on, Neil. Two of them, so we may hear both of them. Fantastic. <laughs> um, so, you know, you, you get that, that, um, th that image of Streisand from the very outset of her film career um, as a woman who's overcoming the, the odds. You know, Neil, as your as your book title articulates, this woman changed how we think about thinking about the conventions of beauty, femininity, and power. Explain how you came up with this thesis for your book. Well, actually, it was it, it was not only the the thesis, but it was the reason I wanted to write the book. Uh, I'm an admirer of Barbara Streisand. It's hard not to be. I mean, she is such an enormous talent, and I, I think whether you love her or not, uh, you have to admire her. Yep. Um, but that's not why I wrote the book. Um, the, the real impulse for writing the book was the way that she influenced culture. There are many great entertainers, many people we, we love to listen to, watch, uh, laugh at, whatever. But Barbara Streisand was more than that. She was one of those handful of entertainers who actually changed the culture. And the subtitle of the book, I, I hope, expresses the ways in which I think, the paramount ways in which I think that she changed the culture. She redefined our understanding of beauty. Before Barbara Streisand in entertainment, there were beauty conventions. And almost every woman had to abide by those conventions. You bet. They were all conventionally beautiful women. Barbara Streisand, I think, is a beautiful woman. But she's not conventionally beautiful in, in any sense that her predecessors were. Uh, Barbara Streisand was not a Doris Day. Uh, she looked ethnic. She acted ethnic. Yep. Um, and she also behaved in ways, and this, I think, bleeds over into the femininity issue when I talk about redefining beauty, femininity, and power. She behaved in ways that were not conventionally feminine. Neil, hold that thought, and we're going to pick up on the fem femininity we're talking to Neil Gabler. We're talking about Barbara Streisand and his marvelous new book, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages with Neil.
This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing with Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just did Bob Dylan, and Bob Dylan is one of those people, I believe, Neil, that changed the culture, too. And, uh, and you're right. So many people are, are great entertainers, uh, but so few of them actually influence the way we think and what we do. And uh, thanks again for joining us. We pick up on that femininity point, Neil, and elaborate on that if you could. Yes, yeah, so, you know, the subtitle of the book is Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And you know, Barbara Streisand, I, I think, clearly changed the conventions of beauty in the movies. There had never been an actress who looked like her before who was not a comic actress. I mean, there have been comedians who you know, looked sort of odd, but Barbara Streisand was not a comedian at least not primarily comedian. I mean, she was a romantic lead. So she changed that. But she also didn't behave the way women generally behaved in movies. Uh, Aside from, you know, that relatively brief period in the 30s and 40s when you had Betty Davis and Jean Arthur and Joan Crawford um, and Irene Dunn and a number of stars who were tough and who were certainly the equals of their male co-stars, you know, Barbara Streisand came into the movies at a time when women were basically submissive. Yep. And yet, submissive is not a word that you would ever apply to Barbara Streisand. And, and one of the reasons that women always were submissive on screen is that that was considered feminine. I mean, women had to be submissive to the male lead. She was not. And in a way, she challenged our concept of femininity. And the fact that she came along at a time in the 1960s when feminism was at its inception, uh, I think sort of Streisand worked off of feminism and feminism worked off of Streisand. And she brought that, mainstreamed that, into the movies as no other star had done. So she changed really our concept of femininity and allowed us to accept a woman who was tough, who was often regarded as mannish. Um, But her idea was that women could be tough without losing their femininity. You bet. And that then, I think, you know, kind of leads into the notion of power. Because Barbara Streisand, both on screen and off screen, exuded a kind of power that no actress had ever exuded or exercised in, in the entertainment world, which is why she could become a producer yep. and a director. And, and that she wasn't, in, in that respect, a trailblazer. You can't say that about Betty Davis or any of those, those tough women of the 40s who I think dominated the screen. And you're right about the nature of most female leads. It was the Barbara Stanwyck's. It was the pinups almost, the Lauren Bacall's, just spectacular and beautiful and could have just modeled if they'd wanted to, Neil. No, no, I would, you're absolutely right. And, and where Barbara Streisand led, many women were able to follow. I mean, there's no Bette Midler without Barbara Streisand. That's right. I don't think there's a Lady Gaga. I think you're dead right. I'm not sure there's an Adele Mm -hmm. without Barbara Streisand. Or a Madonna. Or a Madonna. You know, Barbara Streisand just changed the whole architecture of women in entertainment. Yeah, I've just been reading about Charlie Chaplin's life, and he was an actor who wasn't just an actor. 
And on the business side, uh, he, you know, he was trying to empower artists, male particularly at the time, to take control of their own lives, you know, countering a studio system by building one himself. And in well, large measure, that's just what Barbara was doing. She did. You know, you have United Artists, uh, you know, with Mary Pickford and, and Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin and D.W. Griffith, yep. which was a way of taking over the industry and controlling their own work. Barbara Streisand and Paul Newman and Steve McQueen and Dustin Hoffman formed First Artists, which was a, a later day incarnation of that. But even though First Artists was not a success and, and it didn't last, Streisand still, within the confines of Hollywood, was able to exercise the power that I referenced earlier. Um, I mean, a, a woman director? Yeah. A woman director? I mean, that was ridiculous. unheard of. Ridiculous. And, Neil, and, and even when she did it, there were a number of, of men in Hollywood who were very resistant to the idea yep. and called her all sorts of names. So Barbara Streisand had to withstand not only the abuse of, of being regarded as ugly when she was young and still you know, persevering, but also the idea of being, well, she acts like a man and she's a diva and, and all sorts of, of um, you know, opprobrium that, were, that was hurled at her. But she withstood that as well and was able to succeed as a power in the industry. And as you said, blazed a trail not only aesthetically for women, but also in terms of power for women. You know, it's interesting, Neil. Um, in the past six months, I've, I've covered two really interesting people from Brooklyn that lots of people love and lots of people hate and they have opinions. But both of them have thick skins and they're both American originals. It's interesting that Justice Scalia came from Brooklyn and people have a lot of opinions about him. But here he was <laughs> forging friendships with Justice Ginsburg. And no matter how much you wanted to not like him, you had to respect his talent and his intellect. And let's talk about Barbara's childhood and this Brooklyn thing, because it is a thing. And it, obviously she didn't have the family, but she had a lot of Brooklyn in her, Neil. Oh, she, was, she is Brooklyn personified. And there is something, you are rightly, there's something about Brooklyn that kind of pervades the people who were born there. It's the toughest borough of New York. Yep. Uh, it's not just a, a place. It's a way of being. We all know it's a way of talking as well. But it's a way of being. <laughs> uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a way of, it's a toughness as opposed to Manhattan, which is the, the elite borough of New York and which scorned Brooklyn for an awfully long time and maybe to this day still does. Yeah. But those people who were, grew up in Brooklyn grew up with thick skins, um, grew up with a sense of, of perseverance, uh, and I mean, it was also the the ethnic enclave of New York. Uh, I mean, cheek to jowl, you had Poles and and the Irish and Italians and Jews, um, and and they all somehow learned to coexist there. And that also, I think, toughened them up when they were facing mainstream Middle America, uh, and and you know, were forging their way into that America, you bet. which had resisted this, these people previously. Oh, well, you know, we did a, we did a piece on Yogi Berra, uh, and, you know, he grew up in what was called Dago Hill in St. Louis. I mean, that's what it was called, Dago yeah. Hill. And people mm -hmm. forget that Italians faced you know, all kinds of discrimination. My goodness, Jews. 
I, you know, you could write a book about Harvard and City College and, and, yeah. and not stop. But it never stopped Jews or Italians from being proud, for running away from themselves and being comfortable. I think what's most important, Neil, just comfortable in their own skin and being able to withstand things. And by the way, there are no safe zones in Brooklyn. And these people learn how to deal with insults, with tough times, and helicopter parents weren't protecting them. My goodness, Streisand's childhood... What I want to do here, Neil, is play a clip for you and get your, and get your reaction to this one. Then I'm going to play another one and get your reaction as well. Uh, let's play this first one. I had a stepfather when I was seven years old. But she says he almost never talked to her. And when he did, it was awful. She still remembers he once told her she couldn't have ice cream because she was too ugly. What made him such a creep? I mean, he didn't talk to you. The man never talked to me. Why? Why? You know... At, at the time that I was a child, I mean, I just thought, I just thought that I was awful. You got about a minute right here before we go to a break, but talk about this stepfather and Barbara Streisand's really remarkable ability to deal with this. The most inappropriately named man imaginable. His name was Louis Kind, and he was anything but. <laughs> uh, and he did treat Barbara miserably, and I think in a way probably toughened her. But what made it even worse was that. He had a child with Barbara's mother, uh, Rosalind, whom he absolutely doted upon, and he, and he called the two daughters Beauty, that is his own daughter Rosalind, and the Beast, his stepdaughter, uh, Barbara. And, and so, you know, this is, the, this is the environment in which Barbara Streisand was forged. And if you wonder why she's so tough, that goes some way to explaining why. Well, you know what, Neil? When we come back, we're going to talk more about that. You know, one of my favorite books of the last year is about resilience and how we build it in companies and human beings. And my goodness, that kind of childhood builds resilience. This is Lee Habib. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. More after these messages. So was in our apartment came from father's store even clothes I'm wearing someone wore before it's no wonder that I feel abused I never get a thing that ain't been
this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to truly one of the great vocal talents of all time. But that wasn't enough for Barbara Streisand to conquer film and to conquer so much more. And live performance art. Oh, my goodness, there aren't many greater live performers than Barbara Streisand. Broadway wasn't big enough for her. And one of the great Broadway talents that didn't spend much time on Broadway. We're talking to Neil Gabler, author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. We just played a clip of Barbara Streisand in a remarkable interview she did with Mike Wallace on 60 Minutes talking about her stepfather. Here, she's talking about her mother. My mother never said to me, you're smart, you're pretty, you're anything. You could do what you want. She, she never told me anything like that. My mother would, I would say to my mother now, why didn't you ever give me any compliments? She said, I didn't want you to get a swelled head. Barbara says her mother told her she was odd, skinny, and not pretty enough to be a movie star, that she should be a typist. Wow. And, and t- tell me this, Neil. She, she, the family didn't have money, did they? No, they did not. No, they were very poor. You know, Barbara's father died when she was 15 months old. Uh, suddenly he died. And, and so she never knew her father. And her mother remarried uh, to Louis Kind. Uh, but Louis Kind was not what one would call a, a hard and diligent worker. Um, so the, the, fa- the, the family lived in poverty. For a while they lived with uh, Barbara's grandparents. Uh, so there was never money in, in the house. I, I want to add one thing. When, when uh, her mother said that she would never be a star, uh, she told her that what she ought to be is a secretary, because that's a, that's a profession that's secure. And Barbara Streisand always said that she wore her nails so long just so she couldn't type. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> that, that would preclude her from ever hitting that, hitting that road. You know, it, it's interesting. We were, we're, we're going to be playing a Denzel Washington commencement speech, and he was, you know, he's a Bronx boy, and uh, grew up near Fordham University in the Bronx. And he was talking to a young graduating class about the pursuit of the arts and do not have something to fall back on. Uh, that you got to fall forward and you got to believe in yourself and you got to just keep going and moving forward. And my goodness, I don't think Barbara Streisand had a backup plan. Uh, let's- oh, there was no plan B. There was never a plan B. The second she got out of high school, and she graduated high school six months early so that she could work on plan A, she went to Manhattan and she started auditioning and trying to, to get roles. She even auditioned for the role of one of the blonde daughters in The Sound of Music, even <laughs> though no one could be more quintessentially Jewish than right. Barbara Streisand. But that's how, that's how eager she was, how determined she was, how indefatigable she was. Uh, you know, to succeed. And we know the Yiddish and, word chutzpah, that's, that's what it means right there, doesn't it, Neil? She is, uh, you know, I said she was Brooklyn personified. She's also chutzpah personified. No but doubt. But here's the thing about her. When we were talking about her, her Brooklyn-ness and her Jewishness, one of the things that Barbara Streisand was able to do, and I think one of the bases for her stardom, was that she took her Jewishness and she converted it into a larger sense of otherness. You know, when you look at movie stars, and she always wanted to be a movie star, she never wanted to be a singing star, but when yep. you look at movie stars from the period before Streisand, these are people we all aspired to be. We never felt that they were outsiders. We didn't identify with them. We hoped to be them. Barbara Streisand changed that transaction. She was an outsider. She looked like us. 
She acted like us. She'd suffered many of the same indignities that we suffered. And so when Barbara Streisand came on the scene, the source of her popularity, in my estimation, was that we could identify with her, and she was our vicarious vessel for success. Yeah, I always thought you... She made her otherness our otherness. You bet. And that made her almost the underdog that we all rooted for. And also, well, we're all underdogs, most of us. And though she had this colossal voice, which I actually think when you have that much talent, Neil, it can put a distance between you and the audience. But when you're acting and you're acting the way she did, I always felt like the the ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and saying, go get him. Go get him. The ordinary woman was looking at Barbara Streisand and also saying, I know that she knows what I've been going through. That's true. She had had to go through the same thing. And it's interesting to me that when you look at her movies, her movies are about that. Yep. You know, she generally plays a woman who's been put upon, a woman who has to fight to succeed, uh, a woman who doesn't always get the guy at the end of the movie. That's right. Most of her movies are romances, but if you look at her movies, at the end of the film, whether it's, it's Funny Girl or it's The Way We Were or it's Yentl, she doesn't usually get the guy right and this is by the way is the opposite of woody allen who always gets the beautiful woman always yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well he's another sort of vicariousness <laughs> well that is that is a male vicariousness and that's we, we are dreamers in the end and women well they live on the planet earth <laughs> and again another brooklyn boy woody allen uh, alan Koningsberg. uh by the way sort of he never hid his jewishness in his act neil but my goodness, in his name, he certainly did. Yes. And, you know, Streisand, never, another interesting thing about her is she traded on her Jewishness. You bet. You know, most Jewish stars, most ethnic stars, let's not even, you know, uh, limit this to, to Jewish. You bet Italians. Ethnic stars tried to hide their ethnicity because it didn't sell in Hollywood. Yep. Um, Streisand was one of those people who succeeded not in spite of her Jewishness, but because of her Jewishness. I think that's a powerful thing, and one of the, I think one of the most powerful takeaways from the book, Neil, is that she didn't run from herself, and she didn't hide. And in an era where I think Hollywood was receptive to this, I wonder how this would have worked, Neil, if Barbara were born 15 years earlier. Oh, I think it would have been different. Yep. Although it's hard to say that because she is so unique an individual that maybe, maybe, just maybe, she did have enough fortitude to have even fought through that 15 years earlier. But you just think about one thing, Lee. Just think about the nose job. Everyone told her, you have to get a nose job. I mean, she was told this repeatedly. There were reviews of her oh, yeah. saying that, you, you know, if she gets her nose fixed, maybe she'll have a chance of succeeding. The pressure on her to get that nose fixed was pretty heavy, and she always resisted it for the very reason that you pointed out, because she said, I wouldn't be me. Yep. And by the way, one of the movie critics I, I, was most, I thought most loathsome was John Simon, and the way he treated Barbara Streisand's looks in his movie reviews, I thought, my goodness, it's just disgraceful. And what a writer he is, by the way, and what a talent. But what a despicable man. And I, I, she had to withstand that 
her entire life, actually, Neil. And, and I think right to the end, there were these, these people who were just mean, just like that stepdad. We're, we're talking to one of, the, one of the authors of one of our favorite books of the year, and it's Neil Gabler, and the book is Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this meteoric rise to fame, that first movie, that first movie that gets a very young Barbara Streisand an Oscar. An Oscar. Crazy. Crazy talent. But more importantly, just crazy, great fortitude and character. More about this remarkable life story. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Barbara Streisand. North and south and east and west of your life. I have only West of your life that you spend it all with me all the seasons It used to be so natural to talk about forever used to bees don't count anymore They just lay on the floor till we sweep them away Baby, I remember All the things you taught me I learned how to laugh And I learned how to cry Well, I learned how to love And I learned how to laugh This is Our American Stories And we're talking to Neil Gabler author of Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. And what are the odds of this, Neil? Neil Diamond and Barbara Streisand were classmates at Erasmus High School in Brooklyn. That's crazy. It sure is. (laughs) You can't make that up. Hey, let's talk about her rise to fame. And it's funny, girl. And nobody's ever seen anything like it. Was anybody prepared for it, Neil? Did anyone know it was coming except Barbara? Well, she knew it was coming once she had landed the role. Um, and there were other people who anticipated it. You know, she, the thing about the, Barbara Streisand, she was so young. You know, she was 21 years old when she starred in Funny Girl. Now, that is, is kind of mind-boggling to think that this woman captivates all of Broadway at that age. But she sort of knew it was going to happen. Um, I don't think she had butterflies. I don't think she, she had you know, a great deal of self-doubt. And the thing was that once she landed the role, and once the producers of the, of the play and the directors of the play saw her, they knew she was going to make it too. And opening night was historic. It's a, it's a historic night in the history of show business. Because that night, Barbara Streisand walked onto that stage and into the annals of show business history. She was the cover of Time magazine the next week. That's how immediate the impact was. And then, of course, she makes her very first movie, which was the film version of Funny Girl, and she wins the Oscar. Yeah, there's no... I don't think there's another career that has a parallel to that trajectory and that path, Neil, is there? Not that, not that rapidly. And it's not just, you know, from Broadway to Hollywood. But then at the same time, 
She's recording albums that win her two consecutive Grammys for Album of the Year. Uh, she's the Female Vocalist of the Year. So she's, at, at this very young age, you know, she's 21, 22, 23, she is triumphing in, in all of these different areas, um, in, in nightclubs as well. I mean, you know, that's another area in which she is triumphant. Uh, there's a wonderful story when she is at the uh, Copacabana, and uh, she comes out, the uh, Coconut Grove, excuse me, the Coconut Grove in Los Angeles, and she comes out, and every star in Hollywood is there for the first nightclub appearance of Barbara Streisand, and she looks around and she says, you know, if I'd known there were going to be this many people, I would have had my nose fixed. <laughs> well, by the way, Neil, she had a wicked and great sense of humor on the screen, too, though she loved to play the, 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 you know, the lead uh, character in romantic parts. My goodness, could she be funny, too? Well, that was one of the things that she was able to, to straddle, is she could be the romantic lead, but she could also play the comedian. And, and there aren't many actresses who, particularly today, you know, who can, who can straddle those two ex- self-deprecating. You know, she, could, she was always able to make fun of herself. Yep. You know, she's often regarded as being a diva, but there is a, there is a, a, a way in which you know, Barbara Streisand was able to undermine herself, and that was another bond, I think, between herself and her audience. It's a real talent to have that kind of self-awareness, too, Neil. I mean, in the end, that may be one of the greatest talents of all as an actor, an actress, and a performer is to know how you're perceived and to, well, get ahead of it and control the audience and get them to think what you want them to think about you. And to connect with them. Yep. You know, Barbara Streisand connected with audiences in a way that very few performers have, which I think explains the the nearly 60-year career that she's had. She connected with audiences. They felt that, as I said earlier, she was performing their lives, not just performing for them, but performing them. The songs she sings, even You Don't Send Me Flowers, or People, or Cry Me a River, um, those are songs that express a longing and a loneliness that her fans could connect to. And the characters she plays on screen are characters that her fans can connect to as individuals who are outsiders, who are marginalized. Streisand understood herself and her connection to that audience. You know, it's interesting, Neil. We did an hour on Frank Sinatra, and there was always this part in the set, and we hear him saying this himself, where he said, these are the songs about losers. And, Mm -hmm. And he was always writing about losers. And that kid from Hoboken, which is the Brooklyn of New Jersey, frankly, and the whole state of New Jersey sort of has this same sort of chip on its shoulder and attitude, too. And it gives us Jack Nicholson, and it gives us Bruce Willis, and it gives us Frank Sinatra, and it gives us Bruce Springsteen. There's something about these surrounding spots around New York City that, that just produce this talent. I want to talk to you about Yentl, um, because when I watched this movie, I thought this has got to be the personal desire. Uh, this This manifests itself as something that... I thought was very deep uh, and deeply held to, to Barbara Streisand. How important was that movie to her? Very important. Now, I would say that all of her movies 
almost all of her movies. Let me let me uh, let me put in that little proviso. You know, almost all of her movies were very personal. She didn't make movies that were impersonal. But Yentl was a movie she fought to make. Right. Yentl was a movie she fought years and years to make. She couldn't get financing for it. Nobody wanted her to do it. Her own boyfriend at the time, John Peters, told her she shouldn't do it, which was one of the reasons why they split. Um, but she persisted, as she had persisted earlier, against all odds, and wound up obviously being able to make the film, star in the film, direct the film, and make the film financially successful as well. And yes, I think there's something very personal about that. Why did she want to make it so badly? Yeah. I think that the, the idea of a woman who is scorned, a woman who is treated as an outsider, a woman who is told she will never succeed, that is her story. And then a woman who, by dressing as a man, you know, triumphs over the men, that's also part of her story. Mm-hmm. So there are some people who would say that she acted like a man. She didn't literally dress like a man, right. but she always acted like a man in Hollywood. So that's part of her story. And I think the, the whole notion that in doing so, you don't really win the man. That was something that happened to Barbara Streisand until, you know, relatively recently in her life, until 1998 when she met James Brolin uh, and got married. Uh, You know, she was someone who was almost too much of a woman for many of the men with whom she had had relationships. You know, she was just too tough. Too tough, Um, too strong, and probably in the end a lot of the men didn't feel like men um, because of her strength, Neil. I, I think that's true. Um, and she understood that as well. And I think the, the, the proof of her understanding of that is Yentl. Yep. So true. And, you know, it's interesting, you know, as I remember the movie, she, she sings only in that movie. And when she's singing, it's the equivalent of a soliloquy in Shakespeare. You're getting the inner thoughts. And was that her idea? Because it was really a brilliant... A lot of people criticized her for not letting Mandy Patinkin sing, this great Broadway singer. But that wasn't her trying to not let him sing. It was a dramatic device, and it was a brilliant dramatic device. In fact, she didn't want this to be a musical. And the only way that she could get the financing for the film was to make it a musical because then they knew they could sell the album. Wow. But what they wanted was a Barbra Streisand album. (laughs) They didn't just want a cast album. Right. They wanted an album of hers. So how did she finesse this? She finessed it by doing precisely as you say, turning every song into a personal soliloquy. Well, in effect, what it does is it allows her to emote in the movie in a very powerful way to the audience and, and allow her to, allows her to achieve some very subtle effects. I mean, one of my favorite songs in the film is No Wonder He Loves Her, which is where she's observing why Mandy Potemkin is in love with Amy Irving, because yep. Amy Irving is a conventional woman and submissive. Exactly. And then she sings that song again later in the film, a reprise of that song. Uh, no wonder he loves her, but she's really talking about herself and saying why she loves the way that Amy Irving behaves, because it's a, it's a kind of a femininity that she can't achieve herself. And, and the, the, the first rendition of that song and its reprise is a very powerful statement in the film and a very subtle effect in that movie. Indeed, and that what a vulnerability uh, that she is able to express on film too, Neil, and I think that may be her greatest characteristic, and I think that's what makes so many of the great artists great. They're willing to expose their own personal wounds to the world. Neil Gabler, 
Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. Thanks for writing this great book. Oh, thank you so much. You bet. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. And again, we love every kind of story. How many, how many shows and radio will give you an hour on John D. Rockefeller, an hour on Justice Scalia, and an hour on Barbara Streisand. And we love doing it, and we're going to keep doing it, and you keep telling us to do more, and we're going to. And again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Neil Gabler, Barbara Streisand, Redefining Beauty, Femininity, and Power. Go to Amazon. Order it now. Ageless and devoid